0: The
1: Not Episode 133, the one with an apocalyptic outcome.
0: The Podcast.
1: Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. <laughs> It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings
0: is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's Word.
1: Hello all you Theo tyrants out there, I'm David Gaddy. I'm Jeremiah Orr. <laughs> and there's I'm another I'm
0: Brian there. Gadawa. There we go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and together we are... The The, the
0: Theodos! Theodos.
2: Hey, Brian. Glad to have you on the show today, man. Thanks for
1: having Super me. Super excited. Yeah, long time no listen to.
2: Uh, and I like that intro, by the way, David. Tyrant. Yeah. I mean, that this, this, was uh, very fitting. Clever. <laughs> Clever. How long did that take you? All the three seconds? Ago? Yeah, it didn't
1: take me long at all. Yeah,
2: this. I figured. So how you been doing, David?
1: <laughs> oh, I'm doing good, man. Yeah? What's yeah. going on? Oh, same old thing. Man, this is like... Completely non-eventful. Really. What has it
2: been like? Four days since.
1: We yeah, we recorded, recorded the last show <laughs> barely, you know, and then, then two weeks before
2: that. So we really don't even have anything to say this week to each other. No, other than hey, what's up?
1: I haven't <laughs> seen any movies since then. <laughs> I haven't like. Oh wait a minute! Been discovering bands.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, we have been.
1: Okay, so yeah, shout out to uh, to to the Rivers, Rivers and Robots. Rivers and Robots. Have you heard of them, Brian? No. Okay, it's just, it's like this ambient praise music. It's yeah. really different. Yeah. It's really kind of cool. Uh, they're kind of an indie thing.
2: David's been a hippie hanging out in his, in his hammock listening yeah. to Rivers and Robots for the yeah. past
1: month. I don't know.
2: Yeah, it's great stuff, though. I love it, man. It's awesome. So, well, hey,
0: I have a recommendation then. Okay, okay. what's that? My best friend, uh, Michael Lee, is in a band called Gavlak. You can go find out about them at gavlackband.com, dot com I think or facebook Gavlek. and he does like punk punk rock sounding type stuff I'm not a real aficionado of music so I don't know how to classify but it's you know it's edgy it's punky it's rocky but huh. he's uh he's he's a christian and but the music is really like like Ecclesiastes type okay. stuff he's he's in the world and he's he's singing about a clear world you kind of like a u two approach where you know it's it's not like Christian music, but it's got a real Christian worldview to it. Oh, and okay. I've got to say this: it's not just because he's my friend. I actually like the music, which is always a tough thing because when you're a friend, you know, like if you don't like it, what do you say? Right. And I can honestly say no. It's actually it's actually really good punky, rocky music. <laughs> okay, what's the name again? Gavlak. G a v l a k. Yeah, I Gavlak band.com
2: i have them pulled up here
1: cool looks pretty interesting yeah i'm always <laughs> interested in hearing new exciting things that uh that aren't out there filling up the airwaves right now definitely
0: yeah i think they only have two two actual cuts that are available on itunes which is unfortunate because i've heard their whole album they haven't you know they haven't done the full cuts yet you know or whatever sure. what have you the full production value but I'm like, oh, there's a lot of other good stuff that's not out there yet. But they do play concerts and stuff out here in California. So that's there's cool. one coming up, actually. In fact, they're opening for Ingvy Malmsteen, you know, the famous guitarist from the past. Wow. He's coming up to... Uh, <laughs> that's neat. For... Yeah. I yeah. don't know wow, that's where cool. they're playing.
2: That, that's awesome, man. So, uh,
1: so what have you been doing, Jer?
2: I've been packing up my room. This is the last week of school, and so I'm oh, yeah. closing down for the summer, and I have to move all my stuff to the cupboards, so the summer kids don't destroy it, you know, so yeah,' cause they do summer camp there oh, and they use okay. room some rooms for it, and so they're going to use mine and so I had to pack all that stuff up It was kind of bittersweet and say goodbye to some kids who were moving on and it was it's been a good week so far. Cool. Yeah, been fun. That's about yeah. it, man. Boring life of a, high, a middle school English teacher. <laughs> That's my
1: life. So, All right, so we want to get into some apocalyptic talk?
2: <laughs> I'm very interested in doing that.
1: Okay, so for you guys that don't remember Brian, or maybe you haven't listened to the Theo nuts enough to hear him, <laughs> <laughs> Brian is a uh an accomplished screenwriter and a novelist. And we've been um we've been like uh trying to get people to read his books and stuff for a long time now. <laughs> Ever since it, we started yeah.
2: Theonauts, really.
1: And uh it started us with uh, <laughs> Noah primeval, right? Yes. And uh so which is a great book uh in contrast to the Noah movie that came out back at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, man, Brian, you just produce these books like it is just going out of style.
2: We're kind of wondering how in the world you produce so many books so quickly.
1: And, S- the, and they're they're like well thought out, very, uh, lots of homework involved, deep, like, Lots of <laughs> extremely deep books. Research and, and all that. Yeah. So how are you doing that, man?
0: Plus they're like Lord of the Rings, you know? Everything's like all these massive... Uh, interconnected sort of worlds and stuff and uh well you know what mostly it's because i have st- i've had a personal love of, of theology for for decades already and um so i've kind of all got it all inside of me anyway so when i'm writing i do have to do research but a lot of it's just more brushing up on stuff that i studied and i i kind of like oh i know where to find that again but i don't you know i don't necessarily remember the details but um, so, and I love, I just, I love theology and I love, um, you know, the intellectual life, but I also love imagination and, you know, I love to just let my imagination, you know, take me. And so, but also it's my full-time job. I mean, this is writing novels is how I make my living right now. Sure. And, uh, that started with the Chronicles of the Nephilim about five, six years ago. So, yeah. um, so I usually write like two to three books a year. But this latest series chronicles of the apocalypse. It, it took me a year before I was able to um, release the first book. But that's only because I had to write one and a half books before I could let it. You know, like I, I felt like I had to. I had to go deeper into the story to make sure I wouldn't be forgetting things, or make to make sure I wouldn't discover things later that I would need to stick back in earlier because there's just so much going on right and so um uh and the other thing was was i was writing a theological book to release simultaneously with the first novel we can i'll explain why in a minute but so not you know i had a lot going behind that so when i released the latest book i released two books and i'm going to release the second novel probably in a few months so the wait won't be as long this time because like i said i put all that all that work into it. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of work, you know, but my audience is kind of people who love imagination, love fantasy, spiritual warfare, the angels and demons, whatever that kind of stuff, the watchers, Nephilim, but they also love the Bible and they take it seriously and they want, you know, they like to, they love the research. So, yeah. you know, in my Chronicles of the Nephilim, I, I had appendixes at the end of each book where I explained the research where I got my ideas from because I knew they would sound so wild to people that they might think I just made it up. But in reality, I got it from a lot of ancient texts. And right. I integrated integrated in, in with the Bible in a creative way, you know. And so I, I'm, I, I'm doing the same thing in this new novel series, you know, only this time I'm actually ed- footnoting the novel because the novels, because the story of Chronicles of the Apocalypse, which starts with the first book, Tyrant Rise of the Beast, like you guys already mentioned, Oops. It, it tells a story um, of the first century church, right after the time of Acts, the book of Acts, right. and it tells the story from the great fire of Rome, which starts in 64 AD, and it goes up to AD 70, where the uh, temple was destroyed in Jerusalem.
2: Now, wait, wait
0: and, hold on
2: for just a second, because sure. this is very interesting for our audience. So, you may think that, you know, Chronicles of the Nephilim, which is definitely Old Testament, you're talking about right around, you know, the flood, Noah, uh, all that, uh, yeah. and you trace the history of kind of like the Nephilim through <laughs> through to Jesus, right? Is that yep. the whole idea? Um but then, whenever they they hear uh, a title like "Chronicles of the Apocalypse," a lot of them might be thinking, "Apocalypse!" So this has got to be end times writing. So this is stuff that hasn't happened yet. But these books focus on all the way up to eighty seventy. So what's up with that?
0: <laughs> what's up with that? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, if you take it, um, uh, if you just take it on the face of things. I'm telling the story of the Apostle John when he wrote the book of Revelation. Ah, right? cool. So it's, okay. it's taking place in, in his time period. And I'm writing about the historical events that happened at that time. The, you know, Nero was persecuting the church and all this stuff. But the unique element is is not actually that. You know? uh, what you're hinting at is my, my interpretation of Revelation, of the end times... Is not the typical left behind futuristic scenario. I don't believe that revelation oh, because is what we need is another left behind. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, David. Said, it. What we need is another left behind series. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we 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 poke fun a lot at left behind series here on uh, oh, great. On <laughs> but just so-, so you know
0: too sometimes you guys i may not catch you uh interrupting me because i think the way the sound is working whenever i talk i can't hear you oh. until i stop so oh, just okay. so you're aware if that's why I, I may keep talking without hearing you not a problem
1: okay, we don't have a problem being rude yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. that's good okay so, so, so anyway so then yeah uh I hated Left Behind too, although I didn't read the books. <laughs> but I I know the theology because it's the same theology yeah. that I was taught uh, 30 years ago under Hal Lindsey. It's yeah. called dispensationalism. Yeah. But yeah. you know we can get to that Again, later. But the main sure. point is is that what most Christians do believe it's the dominant view. You know, um, uh, it's not the only view, but it's it's definitely a dominant one. And most Christians are called what's future what's called futurists. That means they believe the end times are the last days are in our future. I am what's called a preterist. I believe that, no, the last days are actually in the past. Preterism is a Latin word that means in the past. Now, of course, that shocks a lot of people at first because they immediately assume a lot of things that, they, that, they, that are inaccurate. But let me just explain that my understanding of the book of Revelation is really not about a future antichrist and tribulation and rapture and all this stuff that's in our future. If you read the book of Revelation within the ancient context of first century Jew who's steeped in Old Testament uh, symbols, right, then you under, you interpret Revelation through Old Testament symbols, through Old Testament prophetic, uh, you know, parallels rather than our <coughs> modern newspapers. And when you do that, you soon find that it's actually uh, a prophecy that was pointing towards the destruction of the temple in, in AD 70, the Jerusalem temple and the city of Jerusalem as well, and um, and, and it's, it does so in apocalyptic or symbolic uh, symbolic references. Now, like I said, most people respond immediately with heresy, right? In fact, I did when I, <laughs> before I believed it. You yeah, know?
2: sure, sure, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, that was my my natural response whenever I was, you know. And I, I grew up, born and raised Southern Baptist, and so I mean, we had. We
1: Clarence Larkin yes. diagrams all over your wall. Yeah,
2: Hal Lindsey was all about no. it, Clarence Larkin. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah. And I I used to teach that diagram. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, the gap yeah. theory thing was the thing that gets me in that. But, but
2: the more ahead. and more I read, the Olivet Discourse was really what, what set it off for me. That whole line... Uh, and I, I, tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. And then, I mean, what he describes is verbatim what happens in eighty seventy to me, you know.
0: Yeah, that same thing for me. It was, the, it was that passage was one of the key passages that changed my mind as well. Because you know, we're always told when Jesus said, um, "Truly, I say to you, this generation shall not pass away before these things take place, um, and these things will happen to this generation." you know, it's been spun in terms of the futuristic light to, yeah. so you go, oh yeah, the generation that will see these things, they're not going to die out. Uh, or <laughs> until, say, until oh yeah, the generation happen. of Jews will not pass away, So and the Jews are still around, right? <laughs> well, no, if, yeah. you, if you actually look at the Greek, the Greek word for generation is genea, geneas, and it has nothing to do with Jewish race, and it has nothing to do with a future generation. If Jesus was going to refer to a future generation, he would have said, that generation shall not pass away. Mm-hmm. But if you actually, the, and by the way, I'm a real Bible oriented guy. Like, you know, you got to prove to me from the Bible that what this interpretation means. Like, I can just tell you, well, this is what it means. So, every, I looked up, it's when you compare scripture with scripture and you look up where this generation is actually used. Everywhere Jesus uses it, everywhere. Jesus uses that phrase, this generation, it's always in reference to his generation, that is, the people who were lived that he was speaking to right then and there. And not only that, and we're talking about a half a dozen places in all the Gospels and stuff, or a dozen places in all the Gospels, there are references like this unbelieving generation, this adulterous generation, and he says this generation will be in the judgment will be, uh, have greater judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah because they... Or or, I'm sorry, will have greater uh, Nineveh will have a better uh, experience in the judgment than this generation because they repented, but you didn't. The context wherever he says this generation, it's always you. This generation who rejects Messiah will be judged. Will be judged. So lo and behold, you get to Matthew twenty three and Matthew twenty four, and what do you see? The entire context is the same thing. He's talking about. The people who rejected the prophets and this generation who would reject Messiah is the most guilty of all because, of course, Messiah is the ultimate. He's God in the flesh. So then Jesus says in Matthew 24, because you're going to reject the Messiah, this generation will be judged and I will destroy this house, the, the house of God, which is the temple which resided in Jerusalem. And so the whole context of Matthew 24 is because Israel... The, uh, the you know the, because the first century Jews rejected Messiah, the par- remember the parable of the vineyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know when they killed the son, he would come back and destroy them and and give the kingdom over to another people to produce the fruit of it. Well, it's the same thing. All his parables talk about the king coming back and destroying the people who refused him. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing in Matthew twenty four that because you rejected Messiah, he will come. Destroy the house of God, the temple. Not only that, but he will judge the people, and you know, bring all these judgments upon them. So there's a twofold aspect that's going on that also carries over into Revelation. And here's my big picture. I always like to, you know, people got will automatically jump into what about this verse? What about that verse? But before you can understand what I'm saying, you have to understand the big picture. I don't see Revelation as being, hey, you guys. Jesus is coming, and before he does, there's going to be an Antichrist, blah, blah, blah. blah. What it's saying is, he, it says it right in Revelation 1, right in the very, very beginning. What does he say? He says, behold, he's coming in the clouds. We have to explain that, but uh, those who pierce him, <laughs> every eye will see him. Those who pierce him, the tribes of earth, will mourn and wail on account of him. And so basically, there's two elements that I see happening in, in Revelation and in Matthew 24, and that is this. God is saying because the first century rejected Messiah, um, then what he's going to do, he's going to do two things. He's going to destroy the temple because it is the symbolic incarnation of the old covenant. Hmm. The old covenant has been obliterated, mm-hmm. and the new covenant now replaces it, right? So, so there's, he's making this point that when Jesus died on the cross, he, he inaugurated the new covenant, but God is not just a God of abstract theology. He's a God of history. He always enacts historically what he's engaging in spiritually or theologically. So he, he, des- he destroys, he obliterates the old covenant, right? And he, he brings the new covenant. But the, think about it. The whole heart and soul of the old covenant is still in place. The sacrifices are going on. How can you tell them just stop it, right? Mm-hmm. So God is actually, what he's doing is he's destroying that incarnation of the old covenant as the final ending of that old covenant so that the new covenant can then take over, which, of course, it did because Christianity spread out throughout the earth after that. So there's this element of destroying, getting rid of the Old Testament system once and for all uh, in, in physical time-space history. And then secondly was the judgment upon the, the people who rejected him, that first generation, because after all, if you think about it, the ultimate crime in the history of the universe would have to be what? the crucif- Crucifying the very Son of God. Nothing could be worse than that. Nothing. No genocide, nothing, right? Sure. And so that's the ultimate crime of all. So they're being judged for that ultimate crime. And then, uh, and, and at the same time, it's also uh, getting rid of that Old Covenant emblem. So that's essentially what Revelation is pointing to. And um, that's where you've got this different paradigm that you then understand a lot of these passages within that first century context.
2: Awesome. Okay. So I have a couple questions for you. In in lieu of that, and this is this is something that always amazes me and something I'm uh, always studying and confused about. So there's a <laughs> there's a major problem. The only there's a well a couple of problems. The first one is what to do with Satan in this in this light because if Jesus came back and that was at and that was eighty seventy uh, in the clouds, right? If Jesus came back, yep. um, sin and death should be completely done away with, right? Fully destroyed, according to Revelation. New heavens, new earth. Sin and death fully done away with, and not only that, but Satan should be Satan and his demons should be locked up and thrown away. Lake of fire. Lake of fire so the the question is and I know Satan's still roaming around here because there's problems right on earth so uh, so what do you do with that that stuff
0: well first of all um, there's a couple aspects to this and that is the key to understanding some of these issues is going to be rooted in what's called the now and the not yet paradigm of of scripture you know remember how I mentioned earlier that, Um, in in AD 30, Christ died, resurrected, and ascended, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, Father, reigning over everything. And not only that, but Ephesians says, we are reigning with him in his kingdom, right now in the heavenlies. However, in Hebrews, it says, yet we do not see everything yet under his feet. Everything is coming under his feet, but it's not yet there, which means it's been established in the heavenlies, and, you know, God's kingdom is then growing on the earth like a mustard seed, like a mountain, all that kind of stuff, right? So there's the it's now, it's been inaugurated, but it's not yet fully consummated. There's and that answers a lot of the issues because you know, no matter what viewpoint you have, you have a problem with this binding of Satan. Because Jesus said in his ministry, he said Satan was bound, right? He said, I, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, because the strong man comes in and binds the uh you know uh, i 'm sorry some a, a man comes in and binds the strong man, and that 's what enables him to overcome him and so Jesus said in his ministry, Satan was bound. well, how can that be if Satan was still going around it? Well, the binding is not an absolute binding necessarily um, it's a kind of restriction of Satan. you know when you read about um, uh, in in uh, revelation twenty one which is the most controversial passage in revelation. Uh, so I don't want to linger on it because, you know, who knows what it really means. But <laughs> nevertheless, the, the, the binding, we hear also about a binding of Satan there as well. But look closely at what it says, though. It says, he is bound, Revelation, let me get there, 21. Is it 21? Oh, I'm sorry, 20. Revelation 20. I yeah. was wrong. Revelation 20. Get them all mixed up. 2010, it talks yeah. about bo- bound for a thousand years old. It says um, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So, the binding has to do with not being able to deceive the nations. What does that mean? Well, when, when all the nations were under the authority of the sons of God and these pagan, you know, the host of heaven, they worshiped false gods and the hosts of heaven, right? Um, but when the Messiah came, they, they were all deceived, and, and only Israel was God's people, uh, only the people of Jacob in, in that physical land. But when Messiah comes, he takes back that authority, and now he's Messiah over all the earth, and no longer are the nations deceived. Now the gospel goes forth, and the gospel opens the minds and eyes of the unbelieving. And so, in other words, this binding has probably, the context of the binding has to do with being able, not being able to hold back the gospel that spreads around the earth. So, these are kind of things that, when you, you know, you, these are just little examples of, of what I'm going to lead to, but uh, secondly, um, so, so you've got the now and not yet, but then secondly, there's, there's a distinction to be made here, and that is this. When I say preterism, there's actually different schools of preterism. Okay. And what I'm, the camp I am in, is, or let's put it this way, the, there's one camp called full preterism or hyper-preterism, and they do believe that literally everything has occurred in the first century, the second coming of Christ, the uh, resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment as well as everything else. But that is an unorthodox or a heterodox view in terms of the history of the church. I am not that camp. I am what's called the partial preterist camp. Which, by the way, if you want to call it a heresy, uh, anyone out there a heretic, <laughs> then you'll have to prove that RC Sproul yeah, is a heretic. Sproul. Good luck with that, buddy. Because <laughs> he's a theologian you cannot you cannot overcome. Um, and uh <laughs> laughs he's a Calvinistically
1: <laughs> Uh, look, he, he's a reformed that's theologian. That yeah. even if you're
0: not a Calvinist. He's <laughs> he's actually an evangelical scholar who he's has great respect on from all schools. Yeah, you know?
2: he wrote a so book
0: po-
2: called the uh, the Gospel according to, or the End Times according to Jesus that really blew yeah. my mind. Whenever I first that that, <laughs> that was my first introduction to preterism But go ahead, yeah, yeah. yeah the keep, Last keep, Days
0: according to Jesus. Last Days according so, to Jesus. That's it. So all, so what I want to say is this, and and that camp believes that though most of revelation and though all of matthew 24 has been fulfilled there is still a future second coming of christ a physical resurrection of the dead and a final judgment all right now the the this the events surrounding that though are almost you know uh so ambiguous we, we we can't really tell and and um there's not a lot of specifics is what I'm getting at right and that's that's very different so but 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 my point would be, um, so, so there's assumptions in what's being said that aren't aren't true, and the number one element that is the most controversial and the most difficult to address is precisely this, but didn't you know, but doesn't Jesus say when he comes on the clouds, and isn't that the second coming? And my argument with that with, with that would be for that would be. No, it's not the cloud coming of Jesus. If you study it in the scripture, and this is a fascinating—it's um, really funny because when I first was struggling with preterism, I could see everything in Matthew twenty-four. Okay, it all makes sense. It all makes sense how it was—it it happened in the first century. But when you get to that verse, you know near the end where he says, you know, uh, and then you will see him coming on the clouds, verse thirty. Obviously, that hasn't happened, right? So there, there must be something else. That must be the future. Well yeah. no not necessarily actually because uh, and now I now I believe that's this is really almost odd when you study the imagery symbolism of the Old Testament integrated with the New Testament that to me now personally is the easiest thing to prove that it happened in the first century why because the poetry is very consistent um there's a couple things first you look and through Jesus doesn't talk about his cloud coming in that place alone. He, he mentions it in a couple places. One of the most amazing places was is Matthew 16, 27 through 28. Jesus is talking about coming. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father. Surely that's the second coming, right? He will pay, repay to each according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom right. what so now you must you must believe that you know maybe he's talking to a i don't know 200 people right so you must believe if you take that literally and that that could not be a nothing but the second coming and it hasn't happened there must be a couple hundred people walking around who are <laughs> immortals and two thousand years old right you should write or, a book about
2: that <laughs> <laughs> I said you should write a book about that
0: <laughs> No, yeah, quite, quite, quite honestly, it would be kind of cool Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, but t- taking the Bible consistently So right then and there you realize that this coming Is actually something that Jesus was saying would happen within his lifetime Lo and behold, that's exactly what he said in Matthew 24 This generation would not pass away, right? right. These people who are standing right here and by the way, there's, there's, you know, there are other passages, but let me jump back to the, 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 um, uh, where, where it really comes, comes into strong relief. Then, and here's what it comes to: is this phrase "coming on the clouds"? What when we interpret it through our modern Western eyes, we, what do we immediately picture? Jesus is surfing on a cumulus nimbus, right? Okay, maybe he's on a horse, and the horse is surfing on a cumulus nimbus. But the, but the problem is that wasn't written to us. It was written to ancient Jews. And this phrase coming on the clouds was a very well-known poetic description that was used multiple times in the old Testament. And here's what, here's what it meant. It it meant two things. One is um, only gods came on the clouds. So, you know, um, you know, ancient Canaanites believed that Baal was the cloud rider, right? So when, when the, um, when the Jews came in, they said, no, Baal isn't cloud rider. God, uh, Yahweh is the cloud rider. So it, it's a reference to deity, yeah. and secondly, it's a phrase. It's a fr- it's a term that means God is coming to judge a, tr- a not a nation, a people, or a city. In the Old Testament, whenever he does that, he uses this cloud language, which means. And and every time he judges a nation, a tribe, or a city, what does he use? Does he do it? F- does he come in physically on the clouds and do it himself? No. He always does it through another nation or another right. people. Sure. So, so for example, uh, when, when God comes on the clouds to judge Egypt in Isaiah 19, and by the way, this happened and was fulfilled in 700 BC, so this already happened, he says, the oracle concerning G- Egypt... Psalm, or Isaiah nineteen one. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. Did, did Yahweh come literally and physically in the clouds? No. He used another nation, which was the Ethiopians, to actually judge them. I could go through a litany. This is not the only passage. He does it against Egypt. He wow. does it when he talks about judging Assyria, when he talks about judging uh, Israel in the first century. He always talks about this cloud coming, a day of clouds. And so this notion of cloud coming is a reference that means judgment upon a tribe, a city, or a nation. And um, so in other words, my point is is it was very common for Jews to think in those terms. So jumping now to, to, uh, uh, back to you know, Matthew 24, oh, okay. What does Jesus say in the beginning of Matthew 24? He says, if I can get there quickly. He says, not one stone will be left upon another of this this uh, temple, right? Matthew 24, verse 1. They're going sure. around talking about the temple. Not one stone's going to be left. This house will be desolated. Why? Because you rejected Messiah. Mm-hmm. Then he goes through all the signs of the end of the age, and then he ends up saying, and then the Son of Man will come on the clouds, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of, of heaven with power and great glory. So basically, what he's saying is, uh, and this, you know, he he clarifies this in other passages, like Luke 21, where he says, the our, our, you know, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is at hand, and uh, it's it's so it's very clear, you know, they will put a siege up against you. He says, right. So the point is, is when the Roman armies, again a pagan nation, surrounds Jerusalem, you will that will be the sign. Uh, to those who rejected Jesus, right? The those who pierced him, you know, his own people, the first generation of Jews. The sign that he is Messiah, the one you rejected, is the fact that Jerusalem will be destroyed. That's the sign that he is sitting at the right <laughs> hand of God. Meaning, he is, but you rejected it. But this proves that he is, and and that's the that's the whole picture of what's going on. Is uh, the Roman armies are God's? Is the way that God uses to judge first century israel for rejecting messiah and that's what this this whole you know paradigm is really is really trying to explain wow yeah that's
2: cool wow that's really powerful uh, you have a uh an online course right that i do that you walk through this with tell us a little bit about that
0: yeah no I, thanks for asking um it's called you can go to last dot com. i think is where it is let me double check make sure that's still up yeah lastdayscourse.com or just go to gadawa.com and you know look through my tabs and you you'll find it like actually go to the store in, sure. in gadawa.com and it'll and it'll point you to that to that website but i do I, I have a series of 10 teachings where i go through a lot of these things where i explain the theology of the end times and stuff as i've come to understand it with visuals with um, uh, you know um, powerpoints and stuff like this but also film clips from things like for instance you know, um, one of the things, well, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, but anyway, so for those <laughs> who are more interested in the theology, you can, you can take that course and you can have access it forever for the rest of the time on the, online on the internet for as long as you live, and um, I, I do that teaching, but I also have the book End Times Bible Prophecy, right. which also walks through Matthew 24, and what I do was I wanted to have that out there so that people, if they're c- confused about the novel, because believe it or not, we're sitting here talking about theology. The truth is, you guys, I'm, I'm more in love with my novel than I am with the <laughs> theological books. But if Christians want to understand the context because it's confusing to them, that will help lay it out for them. So that when you read the <clears throat> Chronicles of the Apocalypse, it, will, it might make more sense within that context. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is, no matter what view you do believe of the end times, I still guarantee you you'll love the novel— <laughs> and and one of and the reason why is this because, I I sought to be historically accurate. I had to be because I wanted to prove why this how this fulfills the scriptures. So I did heavy research to make it historically accurate, and I also have um, I also work in the watcher paradigm, which I have in my Chronicles of the Nephilim series, right. which talks about you know uh, the gods of the nations and and all that. So and it kind I, of ties them together. It.
1: It kind of ties ties them, ties them together.
2: It ties them together, yeah. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Uh, one thing I was going <laughs> to so, a- ask you about is because um, c- this isn't a new thing either. Um, Hank Hanegraaff did a similar thing years it? years ago. I don't know if you read any of those.
0: Yeah, those I'm, books. I'm so bummed because I wanted to say I was the first one to do it. <laughs>
1: but I can. Yeah, it's actually it's called the the last sacrifice. I don't know the
0: last disciple. The last series, last think.
1: disciple series. Uh, and yeah, it's yeah. and it's basically it's his uh, um, Left Behind series set in wow y- you know th- this time frame. But the cool thing is, I know your writings, and I know this is going to totally rock. <laughs> oh, it, because I
0: don't mean to sound I don't mean to sound proud here, but the, it really does, and I can <laughs> see this. It, that's His is not at all like mine, I know, because I'm, I know he doesn't ha- necessarily have my viewpoint. So, yeah. Um, But yeah, so what I'm saying is, people will love this for the spiritual warfare, for the fascinating historical context, um, you know, and it, like I said, um, here's the here's other thing is, it, it tells you the story of a very, again, no matter what viewpoint you do have about the end times, this destruction of the temple in seventy AD is a very critical mm. historical and theological turning yeah. point in history for both Judaism and Christianity. Yeah, so who right. does to that really <laughs> know more behoo- about it? And my problem is, is most I don't these pro- Bible prophecy teachers never teach you about this stuff because they don't believe right. it's relevant, right? And, th- but and I think it is.
1: One of the things that that I found very interesting because in looking at this preterism stuff, I've I've, I've started reading uh, the Perusia um mm-hmm. and, and which is like the quintessential book on yeah. this uh, i forget the guy's name who wrote it um russell yes yes um anyway um and so the whole thing that it's it's just kind of uh fascinated me and i had never really i mean i knew the temple was destroyed in 870 like i knew that and it was like okay yeah. the romans you know knocked the temple over and that was kind of all i knew and yeah. then I went back and started reading Josephus. No, this is a huge thing. Like, this is a horrific time period. And there's all this bad stuff that's happening, you know, earthquakes and famines and all these things that are talked about in the scriptures are actually occurring there. Uh, people were starving. They were, eating, uh, they were eating their own children. I mean, there's all kinds of weird yeah. stuff in there. Wow. Yeah, totally.
0: And not only that, but... Um, I really found Nero to be a very fascinating villain, so I have a lot about him in there. But one of the things I cover extensively, uh, which is why I, I, I advertise this the first novel, Tyrant Rise of the Beast, I advertise it as a, a book about the persecution of Christians, which in a very realistic, in a very real way, reflects um, the, the spirit of what's growing right now in our culture. And that was, um, I, I talk about the Great Fire of Rome. And what happened was that um, rumors started going around and and may very well have been true that uh, we don't have proof of it, but it may very well have been true that Nero started the fires of Rome because he wanted to level the city so he could rebuild it in his glory and call it Neropolis. Um, But what happened was the populace started, those rumors started growing and they were getting angry. And it doesn't matter how powerful you are as a Caesar if all the people turn against you, they can lynch you. Oh, yeah. So he needed, a, he needed to find a scapegoat, and uh, he found it in the Christians. Why? Because they were preaching the fiery judgment of God, right? <laughs> and not only that, but the book of Revelation talks about that in relation to Rome. And so I actually have that in my story as well, where Nero hears about this subversive letter going on that talks about assassin. he's a beast and it's going to assassinate him and all this. So he sends out a Roman prefect to track him down and see who's writing it and kill him and all this. So I kind of have a thriller element to my story. And in the course of that, he discovers what it all means and stuff. But, but my point, or what I was getting to, was that Nero um, then engaged in the persecution of, of Christians called the Neuronic Persecution. And, and, you know, we, we all know that throwing Christians, Christians to the lions was where this first originated. But there's a lot more to it than that. And the, the, pers- the, um, the, the horrors that Nero visited upon the Christians were truly, truly diabolical and demonic. And I bring those things to life, so this is not a mm. book for fam- family reading, um, mm. but I tell the true story of the persecution and what happened to the Christians. And I do that because I'm convinced that when the Bible talks about the Great Tribulation, the Neronic persecutions was the Great Tribulation. And the reason why that's, and, and that, that's significant then, because that makes Nero the beast of Revelation. Nero and the Roman Empire. You know, the Roman Empire was the, you know, the beast with seven heads, which represent seven different kings, right? And, and um, in fact, let me, let, me, let me point out two things. One, if you go to Revelation, um, let's see, if you go to Revelation 1, verse 9. John says, I, John, listen closely, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance in Christ was on the island of Patmos. So (laughs) right there in the book of Revelation, he says the tribulation was going on at that moment.
2: That's he definite evidence. It. Yeah, that's that's huge right there. That's that's totally. <laughs> that's that's. I mean, verbatim evidence. Let me ask you so a question. That, oh, go ahead. Real quick, I, I don't want to get you off the subject. So you identify Nero as the beast, but you you also. So what do you do with like a, what's his name? Is, is it Vespasian? I can't remember. I don't Vespasian. know. My, yeah, he was just as bad as Nero, wasn't he? Like, um, all the way through.
0: So yeah, no.
2: I would identify I don't know would, would it would it be just Caesar's or were the beasts <laughs> yeah. does that make sense
0: well here's the thing uh, history is complicated history is complex and prophecy is symbolic and why is it symbolic because it you know it's not going to uh, prophecy uh, how can I put it um, since history is complex you you have to you have to talk about things through images because it gives you a little bit more ambiguity. Sure. Uh, but I think what you're referring to is actually Titus. Um,
2: uh, yeah, because here's right. what happens. I'm sorry.
0: The, well, Here's what happens historically. Nero is the one who's Caesar at the time. The Jews rise up in revolt, and Nero then sends Vespasian, who is his general, and his son Titus to to Ju- uh, Judah, Judea, and it, 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 they take three and a half years, hmm, three and a half years, where have <laughs> you heard that before? 42 months. <laughs> it takes them three and a half years to wow. devastate Israel and besiege Jerusalem, and guess how long they besieged Jerusalem itself within those three and a half years? <laughs> Five months. That's true. Wow! The five months that it talks about the uh, locusts being released from the abyss and, and from the wow. crazy all stuff. Anyway, there's yeah. a lot of correlations there. But my point is, is but what happens is in the middle of that, right before they besiege the the, the temple, Nero dies. So Vespasian, and Vespasian is uh, called to be uh, the next. Well actually there are three in the in the space of about 8 months there are three different emperors that rise and fall until Vespasian gets back to Rome and takes over as the new emperor and then later Vespasian of course will die and Titus will become his Titus's son will become the next caesar after Vespasian or, I'm sorry yeah after Vespasian um, but it's important to understand that when you are the emperor's son titus represents Vespasian his family so titus was actually considered would actually be referred to as imperator when he's over in judea because he represented caesar while he was the general of the army see what i'm saying so there's so what i'm saying is there's this you know uh fuzzy connection going on that if you represent the emperor you you represent him like a like an image does right but here's 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 how some of it comes back into place so, if you understand the beast of Revelation, the beast is the emperor, empire, but it has seven heads. And it's interesting that John himself tells you that some of these images have double meanings. So you've got to be careful not to be so exact about it. Although I mean, it, it does come out; it works out. But I'm just what I'm saying is, you have to be fluid and realize that the beast is both a corporate entity of the empire and. Sometimes it's referred to as an individual, like the mark of the beast, 666, right? Sure. So if if you go to Revelation 17, this is where some of it comes into clarity. And this is another one of the strong evidences of, in the Bible, why it it happened in that first century. So John is having this vision, right? And he's he's 17, he's talking about the harlot and all this stuff. And then he he takes a moment to go, look, I'm going to explain something to you. In other words, he gives all these symbols and sometimes he tells you what the symbols mean explicitly. And this is one of those, right? (laughs) He says this, calls for mind with wisdom. The seven-headed dragon he's talking about, or the seven-headed beast, he goes, the seven heads, uh, Revelation 17, verse 9, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. In the ancient world, it was very obvious to everyone. Rome was always called the city on seven hills or seven mountains. So, he's saying, oh, those seven heads are seven mountains. So, he the beast is Roman, or the Roman Empire itself. And he says they are also, so not only do they represent one thing, but they represent something else, seven kings. So the beast is both an empire, but also the individual heads represent seven kings. And by the way, Caesar, the word for Caesar means king, so it's the same thing in the ancient world. Sure. So there are seven kings. And then he says, five of whom have fallen, one now is... The other is not yet coming. When he does, he must remain a little while. What does that mean? All right, but here he's kind of rooting. He's saying, look, I'm explaining to you what this means, and I'm rooting it in our time period. There are seven kings, five of whom have fallen. Well, in the time period when Nero was Caesar, there were five previous Caesars to Nero. starts with Julius Caesar, Octavian, and goes through. And Nero was the sixth Caesar. So five before him were already dead. Then it says one now is. Well, do you find it coincidental that in the time of John is writing, the sixth king or Caesar of Rome was Nero, and he was currently reigning? <laughs> That's no surprise wow. to me. Mm-hmm. But it goes one step further, and it says the other has not yet come, but when he does, he will come a little while. He, he, it's like he throws a little added thing in there. Well, guess what happens when Nero dies? The next emperor was Galba, and his reign was only six months because they were Rome was under civil war. And they had what's called the year of the three emperors, and Galba only reigned six months, a short time. So you can see <laughs> how he, the, he's rooting it in his time period right then and there, and he's explaining some of it pretty clearly. And the rest of it, is, it can be more difficult at times. But So in that sense, the beast represents both the empire and individual emperors at different time periods, right? Mm. And there's also, I mean, there's lots of other things, but um, Titus ultimately is, you know, the problem is, is that the siege goes lasts for three years. It starts out with Nero's alive, and it ends up with Vespasian as Caesar. So, things change during it, things change in Rome during that whole time period. And I think that John sort of catches that as well as couple that with Daniel. Daniel talks about the abomination desolation, right, and, and desolating the temple <coughs> and all that. Mm-hmm. And if you couple that with Daniel, you'll also see that references to like the little horn, I believe, are to Titus. So, in other words. I don't necessarily think, a lot of people tend to think that all the, like, the man of lawlessness in Thessalonians is the Antichrist, which is the beast, which is the abomination, which is the little horn. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think each of these prophecies have different symbols of different, um, you know, uh, important historical men, you know, in relation to the, to the whole picture. So you've got to really study deep to, to you know, to, to figure that out. But, and it's yeah. tough. It's not easy. I don't, yeah. certainly don't think it's easy.
2: Well, it definitely sounds like you've done your homework yeah. <laughs> in this. So, reiterate to us exactly what this series is walking through as far as the storyline. So, we have... Yeah, so I, Go
0: absolutely. ahead. Absolutely. So, I start with the Great Fire of Rome. I describe that. I describe um, what it's like in... You know, this is the rise of Nero as the beast. And so, I describe what his kingdom was like and all based on research. And a lot of people think he was a madman, but he really wasn't. He was evil. <laughs> mm. uh, but he wasn't actually mad. Um so that, that that's an interesting thing that some people don't realize. But I think he was an artist, or at least he wanted to be. And so in, in he, he has a, he's a strange villain in that he believed in beauty, and he was more obsessed with being a, uh, playing the liar and being a charioteer to be a, a champion than he was in, in being a Caesar. But he used the Caesar powers... Of course, to wreak havoc. Yeah. But yeah. nevertheless, so it well, starts you got with that, uh, and it off at the persecution.
1: You got that traditional um, Nero played the violin, the violin while, while, while Rome burned. Rome yeah.
0: That was that was the legend. It's not true. Uh, but I, I I include that in there, and I include the historical reality. The, the truth was, when Rome started to burn, he was playing in a um, a musical contest in a city about 40 miles away. I can't remember the name of it now, but, um, so he was playing his liar in a contest that he ended up won- winning because of course he won every contest he played in. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so that's where they get the idea, you know, he, you know, part of the, part of the proof that, Hey, he didn't start the fire was he wasn't, he was in, uh, an- he was in another city at the time. Oh, of yeah, course. Yeah. That doesn't matter. Right. <clears throat> but the point, so then what happens is the persecution starts, they start hunting down the Christians and the, the three main characters in my story are this. I have a Roman prefect who has a Jewish doctor. And the doctor is his personal doctor because the prefect's part of the praetorian and or he's part of the Roman legions. And they could, they could force you know Jews to be their doctors if they were good, if they wanted to. So my main character in my story is this Jewish doctor named Alexander. And he's sort of begrudgingly forced to help this prefect, right? Um, but he's also a Hellenist, meaning he's a Jew who... He's not very committed you know i mean he's he, he likes to compromise he loves a lot of greek culture as well as his judaism so he's a man of compromise wants to have both best of both worlds right mm-hmm. and then my third character is when they start persecuting the christians they find this beautiful woman who also happens to be uh, a rich heiress of a, of a merchant shipper her name's cassandra so she's beautiful but she's also mysterious to them because she's a christian and they so they pull her back instead of letting her go to the arena and they make her the the Roman makes her his servant and but what's interesting is she does something she does an act of sacrifice that saves saves someone very important to them, so they they treat her re- with respect right and so these three are together in the story, so I'm giving you the story through the eyes of a Christian, a Jew, and a roman oh that's and cool. that's why I say
2: that's what? cool he said that's yeah. really cool, that's a great aspect that's, yeah. that's pretty neat so go <laughs> on, sorry.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I wanted to give that because that allows me to then, you know, quote scriptures from the Jew, quote scriptures from the Christian, but also sort of say, well, what what would a secular person, how would they see our religion in that time period, you know, and be skeptical? I wanted wanted to be truthful to all these viewpoints. And um, so what happens is then um, the prefect is trying to climb his way up the ladder of power, and he gets commissioned by Nero. Nero hears about these Christians, and eventually he hears about this subversive letter uh, that Christians are passing around. and it's basically the letter of revelation, but he doesn't know it. And he thinks that it's against Rome, the Roman Empire, right? And so he commissions um, the Severus, the Roman, to hunt them down and find out where it is. And of course, he takes along the Christian as a servant and the doctor to help him. And they end up going on a journey into asia minor because they hear about oh it's you know they, they find fragments of this letter because the christians are burning it so that they can't catch them right and then he, they they end up in uh asia minor because they hear about these seven churches that were in so they go to each of these seven churches to find out well maybe if they can track down some more details so this is how you know and meanwhile we're seeing what's going on in the spiritual realm what is what is satan's goal you know what is he trying to do and Satan is behind the gods of the nations, so he wants to bring all the the nations down upon Israel and destroy the city himself, right? He wants he kind of has that goal. But there's also machinations and betrayals going on because, mm. of course, they're bad guys, and bad guys don't always follow the plan. And I've got I, so I try to I try to that's the fantasy element where I also show the <laughs> spiritual warfare that's going on at the same time. And you know, so there's of course a lot of demonic activity in this time period. We read about that in the Book of Acts, right? Yeah. So I, I I depict a lot of that, and then of course they all they end up in, in Jerusalem as well, and the 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 uh, the first book ends with them finding the Apostle John because ultimately they real they they discover oh it's this it's this Apostle John the last living Apostle, and they want to find out what it means, and you know the Rome, the Roman will kill him if he thinks he's going to be subversive, right? So it ends up with him finding the Apostle John, and that launches us into the next book, which uh, goes further than that. But that's basically the first book. But it's not even though the book, even though the series is a series, each book will be have a complete beginning, middle, and end that will be satisfying. So I have a big, um, I have a big battle mm. that concludes each book basically, and uh, which makes it I, I think wraps it up in a very satisfying way.
1: Yeah, kind of like the Lord of the Rings. It's a <laughs> yeah. They always did that. Totally. Yes. Um so only
0: only instead of elves, I have demons and angels. <laughs> instead of elves and trolls. Yeah.
1: So do does um does Peter and Paul actually make appearances in your story?
0: They do. They do. And you know, this is one of the interesting things I found fascinating as I did research was, you know, there are a lot of legends about the apostles and we don't know a lot about them. And you know, there's different legends. So I had to pick ones that worked best with my story and, you know, um, and and many of them believe that both Paul and Peter were executed in the great persecution, the great tribulation in Rome. Right. Paul was beheaded and, you know, Peter was maybe crucified upside down. Um, Those, you know, that's, those are the traditions that we have. And, and so I do tell that those stories and I tell a little bit, I have Paul show up, I have Peter show up. um, And, and Paul ends up in prison, you know, some believe that Paul went to Spain, um, you know, which was the outer edge of the empire. Right. So I deal a little bit with those guys and, and a little bit with those them as apostles and, and, and a little bit about the Apostle John, you know, that some believe, you know, there was legends that he was boiled in oil and survived that. And I bring all that stuff into here. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but I do it, I do it in a creative way where it's not always like, it's sometimes it's factual, like, or sometimes it's factual, sometimes it's. Let hearsay like you know you you find john the apostle john coming before nero and nero says hey i hear you but i hear they tried to boil you in oil you know it's like uh but <laughs> yeah. you you survived it you know so i bring it in in that in that sort of manner oh, that's um, cool.
1: well uh one of the things that that i find that is going to be cool about this <laughs> is that irregardless of where you go from a uh esch- eschatological standpoint, um, it gives a context to the other writings of the New Testament. So, yes. so like, for example, the first and second letters by Peter are written later in his life, and he actually addresses these things. Like he's addressing the persecution of Nero. I mean, it yes. comes, he comes right out. And of course, we, we always kind of take these scriptures to just mean kind of like an in general, uh, when, you, when you suffer, blah, 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 blah but he's not doing that he is talking a very specific of something that he knows is happening so like in see like 1st Peter 4 verse 12 he says beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings he's not just talking about hey when you're out there on the street and things go you know awry he's specifically talking about this fiery trial that's coming and, yes. and he is preparing the, the readers of his letter to be able to persevere the suffering that's about to happen to them.
0: Mm. Yes, yes. No, I, absolutely. And I, I do bring that. I bring in Thessalonians. I bring in Peter. I bring in, um, let's see, I'm trying to find one. Was it 120? Yeah. Okay. So in 1, tw- in 1 Peter 120, get a load of this. He was for, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Wait a minute. I thought the last times, the last days was in our future. No, <laughs> Jesus was made manifest in the flesh in the last days. This brings us back to this this other notion. Everyone automatically assumes when they hear the word the end of the age or the last days, they assume, well, that's got to be the end of the world. But contextually in the Bible, no, it doesn't. When Jesus says the end of the age... It basically, he's saying the end of the Old Testament age. It's not the last days of the universe or the world. It's the last days of the Old Covenant. See what I'm saying? And Mm -hmm. so consequently, you see this phrase show up in the New Testament books where they're saying, you know, John says, the last hour is here, you know, the last days are here. They actually said, "We, you know, the book of Hebrews is, is just one of the most fascinating ones because... There it's, 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 you know, more clear than just about anywhere. He goes, you know, um, in these Latin, uh, Hebrews verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2. Uh, you know, uh, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So Jesus came in the last days. What, are, what does that mean? It means the last days of the old covenant. Why? Because Messiah brought the new covenant. It makes perfect sense, see? And the context of that then is, the end of the age is the end of an era. The the Greek word for age is aeon, which means era. It doesn't mean the end of the world, see? But even then, when they talk about, like, you know, the, 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 the end of all things is at hand, Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, which means it's here. It's upon us. Why? Because the entire New Testament was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., and they knew it was coming, the apostles, and they were basically saying, "That's it. That's the end of the old covenant age. That's the end of the old cosmos, meaning the old paradigm, the old way, the covenant that the way that God operates with the world with His people. That whole thing is being, you know, obliterated and and replaced, right? Yeah. But here's what here's one of my favorite here's one of my one of my favorite ones I like to talk about. It's in Hebrews, and it's Hebrews." chapter 8 and i lost my place here sorry so he's talking about the new covenant all right it's very very clear hebrews chapter 8 right christ obtained a better ministry more excellent than the old the old covenant you know he mediates a better new covenant and the first covenant was had false that's why we have a second covenant it's very clear right and he says uh, and this is the fulfillment of jeremiah behold the new days the, the days are coming when i will establish a new covenant Then at the very end of that chapter, verse 13 in chapter 8, he says, Mm -hmm. in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Makes sense? That makes sense. But then he says this, and what is becoming obsolete, wait a minute, so now it's becoming, it's not yet obsolete, and he says growing old. It's in the process of growing old. It's not actually, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's in process. And lastly, he says, is ready to vanish away it's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away but i I thought he said it already was vanished away what does that mean well he's basically referring to the destruction of the temple because he's saying look they lived in the time period of transition between the new and the old covenant the new had come in christ but the old has not faded out yet because the old was completely obliterated in, in the destruction of the temple. So in that generation time period is like a transition period between covenants. And so he's basically saying the old is becoming obsolete, growing old, and will vanish away. When did it vanish away? When the temple was destroyed, when the incarnation of the old covenant was finally historically eliminated. So that's a fascinating context that makes that brings sense to a meaning of, of, of verses that we miss if we don't understand that uh, pre-AD70 context.
1: Right. Right. Wow. It's good stuff, man. Uh, There's it, a
0: lot more too, man. I mean, it, <laughs> what, what
2: about, well, it what blows about me book? away, but you've got to really just, uh, I, I'm excited to read the book now. I, I want to know exactly what's going on. And so this is a pretty interesting thing. And then of course um, you can read Tyrant Rise of the Beast or you can Jump straight to end times Bible prophecy, which lays it out in
1: factual relevance. But, uh, and you're including your all your research at the end of Tyrant this time as well, right? Like you did with the other books,
0: yeah. You know, but here's what I did I did it with footnotes because I knew that people would be reading along and they would say, you know, uh, wait a minute, uh, (laughs) yeah, wait a minute, Nero's (laughs) name equals 666. Now, wait a minute, yeah. And so I put a footnote right there, but here's what I did I didn't just give you citations. I actually took chunks of scholarly work so that you could re- read the arguments for everything. So it's, it's as a matter of fact, I have as much footnote text as I do novel text. Is that much for it. So wow. for those who want to go deeper, you can. But you don't have to if you don't want to because, you know, you'll enjoy the story. Yeah. Or read through it first and then read it a second time and stop off and, you know, check the notes or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I, I wanted to do that because, again, it's it's first of all, it's anathema to do footnotes in a novel, even a historical novel. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. But the reason why I <laughs> did was because my audience is a Christian audience, and I'm talking about a very uh, uh, controversial topic, the end times that people have very strong opinions on. So they're going to be reading this, and they're going to be going, what, no way, because they haven't been taught this way or because they have their own strong beliefs. Yeah. So I knew that they're going to be very demanding. They're going to want proof. Not They don't want just entertainment. They want proof. Christians want that. You know, that's, that's fine. You know, so, so that's why I did that.
1: I, I um, think that's a great I, idea. <laughs> that's, that's really a, a cool idea.
2: And, it, and a helpful way for us to, you know, really get to the meat of
1: what's going on. So pretty cool. Yeah. I love it. Man. All right. Well, you want to hang around with us and uh, do some news with us? Sounds good. All right. Cool.
2: And now, the news. Alright, so the first main thing, um, the United Kingdom raises the threat level to critical after the bombing in Manchester uh, yesterday, I don't know if you've heard about that, in Manchester, yeah. England, um, but it happened at a at a concert, um, at the Ariana Grande concert, and it killed 22 people. Um, and now um, one of the reasons they're raising it uh, to critical is because, and this is via CNN, um, ISIS has claimed responsibility of the bombing, although there's no evidence to support that ISIS did it other than they said we did it. Um, there there are a lot of people that are uh, um, worried that there might be an extra or another, a wider um Bomb go plan off or, or whatever. Yeah, a bigger yeah. plan in the works. So, uh, pray for the people in, in Manchester. Pray for the people in England. And um, definitely uh, pray for uh, that that uh, ISIS would be stopped. And that I think it. I think it's very. Um, I think it's very obvious. Are there are
1: there end time signs here, Jeremiah?
2: No, there are no end time <laughs> signs. But <laughs> I think it's second. very obvious that ISIS probably had a hand in this because of their view of of young women. Yeah, does yeah. that make sense? Right. Uh, you know they yeah. they cannot they hate the idea of a woman um, being educated. <clears throat> they hate the and we've seen that played out through. I forget the name of the young lady who was shot, um, in Syria. What is her name? She became an out. Avid, outspoken person. She's like 15 years old. She was shot in the head and uh, and lived through it.
1: Oh, really? Be- I don't know that. Story. Yeah.
2: Anyways, uh, she became an outspoken person uh, for women's rights and education. But their view their view of women's rights, you know, is totally skewed. So, uh, it, to me, it's it's obvious that uh, if ISIS claiming responsibility, they're they're definitely the ones that did it um, because this is. It's you know, Ariana Grande, she her main fan base is young ladies and right. So pretty shocking. Pray for them. Uh, let's see here. Um Shame, Guilt, and Fear. What a thousand Americans avoid most. So many Americans, uh, Lifeway Research just uh, had a question and basically found that many Americans are more worried about their reputation than they are their conscience. Very interesting.
1: Okay.
2: Um, Lifeway Research wanted to know if guilt is still a major issue for Americans. Because you know times are changing and maybe Americans aren't as guilty or, or they, they don't, don't feel, feel
1: as, as guilty. guilty
2: about their, their sin as they used to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that might affect how Christians talk about their faith. Um, says McDonald who was the researcher since Christianity also addresses needs such as shame and fear we wanted to know are churches addressing the issue Americans care about most so they asked a thousand Americans three questions to discover these their feelings about fear shame guilt and other issues these are the three questions which of these feelings do you seek to avoid the most fear shame or guilt Mm-hmm. which of these desires is strongest in your life, and which of these directions do you value the most? Over 38% of Americans say they avoid shame the most, while 31% say guilt and 30% say fear. Hmm. So, so it's pretty close. It, yeah, it is. It's like a, it's an overall balance. But it's very interesting to me, shame is, is more important than, than guilt. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they don't want other people to know their sin. And I think that's the American tradition, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. We like to hide the sin. Well, that's
1: what, uh, you know, I was listening to the Derek Webb thing that you sent out yeah. the other day. And, and he's doing this this concert and he's talking about that's what Christians do. We train ourselves to figure out how to hide our sin because right. that's what makes us appear to be Christian.
2: Sure, um, I guess education plays a huge role in uh, in the feelings that Americans avoid. Those with graduate degrees, which is forty four percent of the people they asked, are more likely to avoid shame than those with high school diplomas. Hmm. Um, and Americans ages twenty five to thirty four avoid guilt more than fifty five and older. They avoid shame more, which is v- wow really interesting i would think it'd be reverse the older people as they near the end would try to avoid guilt a lot more than yeah yeah the shame but i guess it's Hmm. it's reverse anything to comment on that brian what do you think
0: i have no idea (laughs) (laughs) all
2: right so when it comes to what americans with evangelical beliefs avoid most Thirty-four percent say guilt. Thirty-four percent say fear. Thirty-two percent say shame. So it's right. Oh, it's about the opposite. Huh? Yeah, it's right. Yeah, right the same. It's it's pretty crazy. It's hmm. weird. Um, so you know what what can the American church learn from that? They should stop shaming. Maybe a little <laughs> bit. I don't know.
0: I, I, wonder- I mean, I, in some ways, I think like all three of them are just really closely interrelated. So it. It becomes like subtle differences that make it difficult to really hammer down, you know? Sure. Like, I would have to sit there and think about what each word means before I could decide for myself, well, what, what do I avoid? I mean, it sounds like it's complex.
2: Right. It is very complex, but for me, the nuance of shame is it's almost like a public identity with your sin. So it's yeah. the other yeah. person knows knows my right. sin, and right. I feel shame because of it. Whereas guilt is, I've done this sin, nobody else knows about it, but I have this hanging over me. You know what I mean? So,
1: like, it's not as, it doesn't bother you as much as long as people don't know about it.
2: Exactly. But most people avoid the shame more than they avo- avoid the guilt aspect. And then fear. Mm-hmm. And,
1: well, and then going back to the Derek Webb thing, you know, he, he was saying, I wish that every sin I committed would be on the five o'clock news because then I wouldn't have a choice, I'd be forced to deal with it. That's right. <laughs> Can you imagine?
2: It's like <laughs> you know, and that's the that's the thing. And so I think in America, especially in the American church, we've created a culture of shaming more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And so we hide oh, yeah. we hide our sin, yeah, um, of course. and and are more afraid of, of being found out in our sin mm-hmm. than are being S- especially exposed if our sin
1: you're than, a church leader of some sort or yeah. held in some sort of esteem. You don't want to be seen as. You know, fallen. As if you have <laughs> sin in your life. <laughs> right.
2: It's pretty interesting. All right. Um, in a first for a sitting U.S. president, Trump visited Israel's Western Wall. Yeah, I saw that. Um, yeah. The Western Wall is one of uh, Judaism's holiest sites, and President Donald Trump made a historic visit uh, to it earlier today, flanked by his senior advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner along with Western Wall, Rabbi Shmel, I'm not <laughs> going to be able to pronounce his last name, Rabinishkanifk, whatever, wearing uh Shemuel. A, Shemuel.
0: is that his last name? Sh- no, the name Shemuel is Sh- Samuel. Shemuel,
2: yeah, yeah. Samuel, Shemuel. Uh, he was wearing a yarmulke. Trump placed a folded-up note in the wall, so he made a prayer and wore a yarmulke.
1: Is he Jewish? Do you have that you have to do that, like it, when you're in that area, it's a holy quote unquote holy place. Yes, so that you have to cover your head. So, like w- when we were there, we went through the they they've excavated a lot of the temple wall actually underneath the city, and we actually went down into there, and they wouldn't even let you enter into it if you didn't wear the little yarmulke, yarmulke. on your head.
2: Wow, it's very interesting. So you know that kind of ties into what we've been talking about. The Western Wall is all that's left over from. Mm. From the destruction of the temple in AD 70.
1: Well, actually, there's, there's more. It's just kind of buried. And they're, 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 yeah. digging, they're digging it all up. Mm-hmm. They, and it's kind of cool, though. Right there by the Western Wall, one of the excavations that's r- like right there is a big pile of stones that are left there from when the Romans pushed them off of the wall. Like they pushed them off the Temple Mount. They, huh. They're the stones uh-huh. of the temple itself that were pushed off of the Temple Mount. Wow. Uh, and there's, there's still kind of piled up land there. Not one stone will be left. Yep. That's pretty exactly.
2: That's very interesting. You know, do you think they'll find the, uh, the ark underneath the uh, temple mount? (laughs) What do you think? I doubt what do you think? it. I think it's because it's in Ethiopia.
1: Ethiopia,
2: right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right, Brian. It's in Ethiopia. You've you've. Studied
0: oh that. yeah. No, actually, I don't. I think it was destroyed. Oh, um, yeah. It's funny because Michael Heiser just had a Naked Bible podcast where he went through all the theories of the Ark, uh-huh. and probably the most, the strongest one, in my opinion, was based on scriptural implications, um, Jeremiah and, and another and Lamentations, that uh, the Ark was destroyed and. You know Jeremiah says, you know, it will be forgotten anyway. So, yeah. So I, I think when the Babylonians came in, they they probably destroyed it. Wow, we've but done that, a you know, we whatever.
2: we did a po- podcast a long time ago. I don't a couple of years
1: ago. Yeah, I, we I used about the that. Robert Cornuke study on it about the uh, yeah about the Ethiopia. Very interesting
2: called. stuff. Yeah, it's anyway.
1: certainly fascinating.
2: Yeah, it it is. I've always I've always wondered if we'll ever find that.
1: You know, the Theonauts' very own Colin Pennington. Is uh, in Israel right now? Oh, really? Yeah. What's yeah. he doing there? Just just visiting. visiting. Yep, touring. It's, it's so awesome. it's cool.
2: That's all I got, dude. Oh, I'm, got done. I'm done. I'm yeah. done. All right.
1: All right. Uh, well, about ready to get out of here then.
2: I think so. Brian, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Yes, is it, a. It's thanks always for having
1: great. me, guys. It's, it's always a, great to talk with you.
2: An eye-opening experience in uh, in the apocryphal book. So. Yeah. Definitely a
1: fellow Theonaut. Apocryphal, did I say that right? No. Uh,
2: no, yeah, y- apocalyptic. you, you Apocalyptic. apocalyptical. Apocalyptical. <laughs> apocryphal, yeah. uh, never mind. Okay, let's go. <laughs> let's do this. It's late.
1: <laughs> the Theonauts are part of the Great Commission Transmission Network, using new media and social networking to go into all the world and to proclaim the good news to everyone. To find out more, to partner with us, go to gctnetwork.com. And check out all of our shows, including Finding Christ in Cinema and the Secret Fire Podcast.
2: Visit our website at theonotpodcast.com for show notes and outlines. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or your favorite podcast catcher. And be sure to rate us because that helps us reach a larger audience.
1: There are several ways you can contact us and leave us feedback. Send us email to theonots at gctnetwork.com. Or call us on our voicemail line, which is 972-885-7270.
2: Tweet to us on Twitter using at Theonautical. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Theonauts.
1: And if you like us and want more Theonauts, drop us a buck or two at patreon.com slash Theonauts. Your patronage helps us in our expenses like hosting fees and equipment costs.
2: Don't forget to tune in again and explore the vast reaches of God's Word with us.
1: All right, Brian, thanks again for being here.
0: Hey, guys, thanks for having me. All
1: right, Jeremiah, thanks for being here, brother. God bless. All right. Talk to you later.
0: Bye-bye. This has been the Theonauts Podcast.
1: Call us with your questions
0: or comments
1: at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. We'd
2: love to hear from you. You are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your Great Commission. This is your Great Commission transmission. At GCTNetwork.com. This is your Great Commission transmission.
1: This is your Great Commission That video room ain't going to be a youth hangout.